and adults, if you take your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're actually going to make it to Acts chapter 2 um, this evening uh, as we continue to consider Christ's threefold office as prophet, priest, and king. And in particular, we're looking at the application of the prophetic office to the church as we're considering the church's prophetic role. But before we go any further, let's again seek God's face this evening. Lord, we thank you for uh, another opportunity that we have to look into uh, the word of life, the bread that is given from heaven like the manna that came down uh, for your people in the wilderness. Father, we as strangers and sojourners and exiles, we are fed with manna from heaven, not physical bread, but the bread of your word. And Father, it is that which is truly able to sustain us in the wilderness of this world. And so, Lord, we thank you again for another opportunity we have to come and to partake of your word. I pray, Father, that our hearts would be ready to receive what you have for us, that we would learn but we would also take what we learn and apply it uh, to our everyday lives, Father, that we might be conformed more into the image of your beloved Son. Father, we are in all things dependent upon your Holy Spirit, and particularly this evening as we are looking at uh, the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost and all that that entails. Uh, Father, may we learn to love the Spirit more, May we learn to hold fast and to seek his ministry in our hearts and lives all the more. And Father, may uh, we seek to be instruments that the Spirit himself uses as we consider uh, the role that we have as your people, as your church, in sharing the hope of the gospel and saying to the world around us, thus saith the Lord. We pray these things in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. So we have been looking at uh, the prophetic role that the church has after establishing the, the prophetic role or the fulfillment of the prophetic role that Jesus Christ himself fulfilled. And we are looking now at how he is passing that role on to his people. And so we're looking, well, how is it possible? How is it possible, as Jesus told his disciples, you know, Jesus had done great works, but he tells his disciples that they will do greater things. And it seems... It seems inconceivable that God's people, that the church, would be able to do that. And of course, we find, as we've been looking at, how God enables us to do that. And we saw, first of all, that this prophetic role that we have is ours by virtue of our union with Christ, that we're united to Christ by faith. And so, again, we love to talk about all the, all the glories and riches of grace that that brings us, but that also brings us these same roles that we're to um, were to complete as we walk upon the earth. And so our union with Christ is how God enables us. But then we see, and what we've been looking at recently, is that the Spirit is given to us specifically for the purposes of fulfilling these roles. And particularly, the Spirit is involved in the prophetic work. And so we looked at, um, at John's 14 and John 16, at the the promise of the Spirit that Jesus had given, that the Spirit is going to be given. He's going to be given for the purposes of uh, God's people knowing the truth, being led in the truth. And then we see what we're finally coming to now is the Spirit working at Pentecost. So we're going to go ahead and read the entire passage of Acts chapter 2 because uh, I think, you know, I was, I was thinking about how can we break this up or whatever, and really it's all one important set um, it's really important that we understand and just, just listen to the Word of God, and then we'll come back and we'll, we'll make some connections and, and see what's going on here in Acts chapter 2. So again, Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends to heaven. Uh, that's going to become significant in, in, a, in a moment. We'll talk about why that's extremely significant for the work of the church from a prophetic standpoint and the work of the Spirit. As Jesus ascends to heaven... He tells his disciples, go back to Jerusalem, and before you do anything, you are to wait for the Holy Spirit. Now, again, just to quickly point out, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't send them right away. He tells them specifically to wait for the Spirit. And, and that's an indication of the pivotal, 
vital role that the Holy Spirit plays in the ministry, in the mission of the church. So they go into this upper room, they're waiting for the Spirit, and then we see in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit actually coming on the day of Pentecost. So Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and uh, um, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, 
and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of the Father, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus, whom you crucified. End of message. Now, one thing I find very interesting about Peter's message here is there's no call, there's no come forward invitation. It's just, you did this. You've crucified the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, look at what happens in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the word, His word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So a remarkable passage of Scripture. This is the founding of the New Testament church. The church is born at this moment as the Spirit is sent upon the apostles. But as we consider the prophetic role of the church, what is happening here is vital for the church to take up Christ's mantle, to take up the role of the prophet that Christ himself fulfilled. And so what we find here is at Pentecost, Christ's promise of the Spirit is fulfilled. In fact, this is again further evidence that Christ is a prophet, a true prophet. He said, I'm going to send the Spirit. He said it several times. He mentioned it several times. And here in Acts 2, what do we see happening? The Spirit comes. It's a fulfillment of what Christ said. He foretold that the Spirit would come and the Spirit came. Now, what's important to note here is, particularly in Acts chapter 2, that while the Spirit comes upon believers, His work in believers at Pentecost is primarily a prophetic work to unbelievers. So, what we, and we're going to look at and balance how the Spirit works among believers to each other. But at Pentecost... And the primary focus of the prophetic role of the church is focused outward. It's focused missionally. It's focused in the Great Commission and sharing the gospel with the world around us. How can we do this? How do we do this? What power is it that energizes the church to fulfill the commission that Christ gave us to share the gospel and to make disciples? It must be through full dependence upon the Holy Spirit. 
this is also interesting to note here that Christ describes the Spirit's prophetic work through believers to the world in John 16. So while we got to Acts chapter 2, we're going to go back in just a moment and look at particularly what the Spirit does as He works in the church to be the prophetic voice to the world. But this is important to note. The work of the church is impossible without the Spirit. We cannot, it is, it is impossible for us, we cannot fulfill the role that Christ has given us apart from the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus, in what we looked at in John chapter uh, 14 and John chapter 16, there was one major passage that I left out. And maybe you were wondering, I wonder why he didn't deal with this one particular section of John chapter 16. Because, we're going to look at it now, because there's a, there's a very clear connection between what Jesus describes in John 16 and what actually happens in Acts chapter 2. So if you want to take your Bibles, you can. We can turn to John 16. I'm going to have the verses up there for you as well on the screen. So Jesus has promised the Holy Spirit. He's already said that he's going to guide the disciples into truth. But then he says particularly that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not just going to be focused on the church, but that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is going to be focused on the world as well. And in fact, he begins with a very strange statement to his disciples. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. All right. So does Jesus ever say anything that's not true? No. Now, it's interesting here that he emphasizes that again. I tell you the truth. Because he's going to say something that we're going to say, that can't be right. That can't be right. Look at what he says. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now, imagine the disciples here. How in the world can it be for their advantage that Christ leaves them? I mean, they have devoted three years of their lives. They've given up everything to following him. And now here he is saying, I'm going back to the Father You'll see me for a little while, and then you'll never see me again, at least in this life. How can that be good? And so Jesus emphasizes, this is true. It's to your advantage that I go away. And so I think that one thing we need to think about today, because we are still in that age where Christ has not returned, that there is an advantage given to us with Christ not being here, that the church we, we have this tendency to be so pessimistic about things, don't we? We look at the world around us. Things are going bad. You know, the world continues to degrade into depravity more and more. And we wring our hands and we think, oh, this is just awful. But Jesus is telling us we're in a time of advantage. We are in a time where God is able to use us in great ways. So the question that that we have to face when we see these verses is, do we believe it? Do we trust what Jesus is saying? Is it truly to our advantage right now that he is not with us? And he's telling us it's the truth. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now, why? Because if Jesus does not go away, the helper will not come to us. So, I've mentioned this before, all right? We've talked about, wouldn't it be great to sit at Jesus' feet and hear him preach? Well, Jesus is saying it's actually better what we have now than actually sitting at his feet through what he's given us in the Holy Spirit. It is to our advantage that we have the Spirit now. The Helper is the one who comes to us. He is the one that gives us the advantage. Jesus continues, But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, here is what's important to note. Who is the Spirit sent to? The disciples. Right? I will send him to you. The Spirit is not sent to the world. And in fact, what we just read in Acts chapter 2, there's a clear difference between 
those who hear the words and those who are giving the words. And the, the hope that Peter tells them is if you repent and if you believe, you'll have forgiveness of sins and you also will receive the Holy Spirit. One of, in, one, in one way, we can say the thing that differentiates believers from unbelievers is the Spirit of God. In fact, we, we, Paul talks about this. We, we have fruit of what? The Spirit. And that's one way that we recognize believers. So it's important to note that the Spirit is given to believers. And then Jesus says, when He, the Spirit, comes, as He comes to believers, He's going to have a work in the world. He says He will convict the world concerning three particular things, sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, I'm thankful that Jesus doesn't stop there. He explains exactly what those things mean. How is the Spirit going to convict the world of sin? How is the Spirit going to convict the world of righteousness? And how is the Spirit going to convict the world of judgment? He goes on, concerning sin, and, and if, we, if we wanted to look for a place to define sin, clearly we can go right here. Why does the Spirit convict the world of sin? Because they, what don't they do? They don't believe in Christ. Because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. And we'll, we'll describe how that is an evidence of righteousness. And then concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Spirit is sent to the church, but He has a work in convicting the world. So, as what we see happening in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit uses the church. The Spirit brings the message. The church is the instrument of that message. In the very same way that we saw in the Old Testament, prophets would get up, they would say, Thus saith the Lord. Peter tells us that no prophecy comes by man's own will or exertion, but holy men spake as they were moved by who? The Holy Spirit. So the church is moved by the Holy Spirit to provide this prophetic role to the world. And the thing that the Spirit does in the world is He provides conviction. The Spirit has a distinct role of conviction concerning his operation in the world. Now this word that's used here, conviction, or to convict, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The idea expressed by the word in the original, it, it sort of, uh, or it provides the, the, the idea or the concept of bringing a wrong to light, so it, it provides a a recognition of something that's wrong, and then, or it, it provides light on what has actually been done, done wrong, and then, it, then that idea has the idea of bringing the person to recognize their culpability in what that wrong was. So he says, this is what you've done, this is wrong, and you are guilty. And he brings the individual to that conclusion. Now, I think it's important to note who is it that does this? Who does the convicting? It is the Spirit that does this convicting. It is a role that only the Spirit can accomplish. I think it's important that we begin here because I fear that sometimes in our fervor to share the gospel, we sometimes want to step into that role. We want to to plead with people so much so that we can become we can become desiring to convict them ourselves. Conviction happened in Acts chapter 2, right? Because the people were cut to the heart when they had heard what they've done. Peter did not provide that cut into the heart. The only thing Peter did was said, this is what you've done. You've killed the Lord of glory. 
that cutting to the heart that we saw in Acts chapter 2, that was the work of the Spirit of God. Working through His church, whom He had been given to, to provide this type of conviction. So there's two specific applications from this idea that the Spirit is the one who convicts that I think are helpful for us. The first is that our prophetic utterances will be successful to accomplish God's purposes. What does God say in Isaiah 55, 10 through 11? For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me, what? Empty. But it shall accomplish that which, who purposes? I purpose. And shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word always accomplishes God's purposes. It is, it is impossible for God's word to not do what God purposes. That's exactly what Isaiah is saying here. Now, there's a twofold purpose that we see in Scripture that God's word has. And for believers, for his people, it's a glorious thing. For his people, the word works to show us the glories of Christ and to be conformed into his marvelous image. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3, 15 through 18. He says, to this day, whenever Moses, and Moses was the first prophet, right? Well, Moses was the prophet who gave the Pentateuch. There were prophets before Moses, but the first prophet who wrote God's word was Moses. And, and notice there's a connection here with that prophetic word. So that when Moses is read today, there's a veil that lies over unbelievers' hearts. They read it. They hear it, and it doesn't do anything for them. But when one turns to the Lord, what happens? The veil's removed. Now, how is that veil removed? Now, the Lord that they're turning to is who? The Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's what? Freedom. All right? It's 4th of July. Freedom, freedom, freedom. True freedom is the Spirit working among His people. And so this freedom that we have now is that when we come to Moses or to the Word of God in general, we are able to behold the glory of the Lord because the veil has been removed. And when we see that glory, we're transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Right? This is a glorious thing. When as we come to God's Word, the Spirit is the one who illuminates the glories of Christ to us. And we're changed into that same image. Paul also mentions this in Ephesians chapter 1. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is his prayer for the believers in Ephesus, that this God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give the believers in Ephesus who? The Spirit. The Spirit particularly of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, of Christ, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. How do we understand anything in the Bible? It's the Spirit. He opens and reveals these things to us. And I think what's important to note in both of these passages, both in 2 Corinthians and in Ephesians, that the Spirit is always going to point us to Christ. That Christ is the one that we see in all of these things. It is His glory that transforms us. It is His work, His revelation, knowledge of Him that allows us to know the hope and to know the riches of the glorious inheritance we have as His saints. So, it is the Spirit who works. But then also, there is a second role that God's Word has. And while for believers, for those who turn to the Lord, it is a gracious, glorious thing, for those who reject God, the Word 
continues to work hardness in their hearts. And in fact, have you ever wondered why Jesus would talk in parables? You know, some, some of the, we love parables, right? We, we love the different stories that Jesus uses. It's interesting to note the reason why Jesus spoke in parables. He's with the disciples. He, when he's alone and those around him with the twelve, they asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. All right? Who gives them that? It's the Spirit. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but what? Not perceive. And may indeed hear, but not understand. And then this is a tough line, but yet it's what Jesus clearly says, lest they should turn and be forgiven. God's word will always work one of those two things. It will work grace and hope and glory to those who are in Christ, but for those who reject Christ, it will further harden them from the truth of the gospel. So the first thing that we can understand is it is the spirit that convicts is God's word has its effect. God's word will not return void. And then secondly, and this I think is the more important aspect of this. The first aspect that our prophetic utterances will be successful to accomplish God's purposes, that should drive us to go. Saying that God will always accomplish what he intends. His word never fails. So when we provide the word, when we speak of Christ, when we share the gospel, it's doing what God wants it to do. And that we can be confident So when Jesus tells us to make disciples, to share the gospel, to tell them of Christ, we should do that confidently. But then, we also have to recognize that our prophetic utterances, as we do it according to the word, they are not dependent on our ability. And this, I think, is something that we struggle with a little bit more. People are not convicted because of the manner in which the message is delivered. It is not dependent upon us to be as convincing or as compelling as possible in the providing of the message of the gospel. We are not the one who convicts individuals of their need of Christ. The only way that people are convicted is by the operation of the Spirit within them. So this means then that we reject worldly means of trying to share the gospel. Now, the church, particularly in America, is filled with individuals and movements that embrace worldly means for the sake of sharing the gospel. That is not where our confidence should lie. In fact, notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. That the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. How do we destroy these strongholds? We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. You can debate someone till you're blue in the face you can win the debate from a rational perspective but is that what is actually going to bring them to faith in jesus christ no in fact paul says in first corinthians chapter 2 that he himself decided to know nothing among the believers in corinth except jesus christ and him crucified which is an interesting statement because that is a position of weakness if you think of it from a human perspective. Who do you follow? I follow Jesus Christ. What did he do? Oh, he was tried and convicted as a criminal and killed. That's, that's what it means when Paul says Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because to be crucified was to be convicted of some of the most heinous laws, some of the most heinous crimes in the Roman system, to be found guilty and then to be tortured as you die. The entire time. It was, it was a terrible sentence. They, the worst of the worst were crucified. 
And what is Paul's position before the church at Corinth? I know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why? Because Paul comes to them in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Paul, in fact, we know from some of the early church writers, some of those who had heard firsthand accounts of what Paul was like, that he was not your dazzling, good-looking apostle. From what we understand there, and again, these are, these are historical things, so we can't be certain of the entire accuracy of what's said, but he's described as having a funny nose, as being sort of short, bald. Um, we know that he had uh, physical limitations. He had a thorn in the flesh that could have possibly been eyesight or something else that had to deal with his hands, perhaps, because he had somebody writing his letters for him. I mean, Paul was essentially the guy who would walk up on the stage and you'd feel sorry for him if you took a look at him. Why would God choose to use someone like that? So that the power of the gospel was not based in Paul's prestige or in the rhetorical abilities that he had in giving words of wisdom, not in plausible words of wisdom. But where did the power of the Spirit reside in Paul as he spoke to the Corinthians? In demonstration of who? The Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest where? In the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This, this, this is so freeing for us who are told to take the message of the gospel. Your duty is to be faithful to the scriptures in how you present the gospel. To say, thus saith the Lord. And then that's it. Our responsibility is message delivered. It is the Spirit's responsibility to bring about conviction that provides the message received by others. So, when you're talking to someone and you don't have all the answers that they may bring up against the gospel, they, they, may, they may object to the historicity of events in the Scripture, or, or they... They may talk about how, well, this just doesn't make sense, or, or why, is, why is Christianity better than any other religion? They may try to poke holes at different things. And, and believe me, there is certainly a place for being able to have answers to those things, because there are answers to those things. But ultimately, our hope for gospel ministry is not based in our ability to answer their objections. Our hope for gospel ministry is to provide the message and let the Spirit do the work. Let him be the one who overcomes their objections to the gospel. Let him be the one who convicts them of their need of Christ. In other words, we cannot argue someone into the kingdom. We cannot convince someone of the truth of the gospel. Only the Spirit can do this. Now, how does he do this. And that's where we see the conviction of the Spirit regards three main things. So again, if we look back at what was said in John 16, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So the first thing, conviction of sin. And then he says of sin, and then what's the reason he gives of why the Spirit convicts the world of sin. What is the sin that the world does? They do not believe in me. At the root of all sin, every transgression, every iniquity that is ever done in this world, at the very root of that is a failure to trust in God. In fact, we can go back to the very beginning in, in, in Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. And at the very root of Eve's decision to eat of that tree and then of Adam's decision to partake with her was that they decided to not believe what God had said. They didn't trust him. They trusted the serpent. Or they trusted their own thinking 
that the serpent led them into. It was really a rising up of self-sufficiency over dependence on God. And so that's what Jesus is saying the Spirit does. Everything exists. He convicts the world of sin because the world does not believe in Him. That is the fundamental issue with unbelievers. They're, They're unbelievers. They don't believe. And that is the very thing the Spirit must convict them of. Paul says this in Romans chapter 14, verse 23. He says, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because he is, is eating is not from faith. Now, Paul is re- regarding this regarding eating food offered to idols and someone's conscience being bothered by eating food offered to idols. And he says that anything or whatever does not proceed from faith is what? Sin. And so this is exactly what the Spirit is sent to convict the world of, to show them that sin is because they reject Jesus Christ. The Lord says to the world through us that sin is the rejection of Christ. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are called to call attention to man's greatest need. And that greatest need is faith in Jesus Christ. Our message is that sin is to reject Christ. And our duty is to speak that message. It is the Spirit's responsibility to convict the world that that is true. This is why our message must be Christ-centered. We're pleading with people to turn to Jesus Christ. Because that is the great sin that lies at the heart of their lives. But why is that the great sin? Why is rejection of Jesus Christ the great sin that brings condemnation? Well, because Jesus is the only one who has the righteousness we need. And this is what's really interesting. He says that he will convict the world of sin, but then he will also convict the world of righteousness. Now, now, what does he mean by that? And he says, as he explains this, he convicts them of righteousness because he goes to the Father and his disciples will see him no more. Now, immediately we may think, what does that have to do with righteousness? Why, why is that a conviction of righteousness. Well, to reject Christ, and that being the essence of all sin, why is that the essence of all sin? Because Christ is the only one who possesses the righteousness needed to be accepted before God. No other righteousness but Christ's is acceptable. Now, this is the problem with the world. They reject Christ, they don't believe in Him, and instead they seek to stand before God on their righteousness. And that that is the great sin because our righteousness doesn't measure up. In fact, what does Paul say in Romans? All have sinned, and sin is falling short of what? The glory of God. It misses the mark of God's standard. So who is it that meets that standard? Jesus Christ. And Him alone meets that standard. All attempts to stand before God with any other righteousness is useless. The only way a person comes to this realization, the only way they come to the end of themselves and reject dependence on their righteousness is through the Spirit convicting them of Christ's righteousness, showing them that He is the one who has the righteousness that's acceptable before God. So why does Jesus then say he convicts them of righteousness because he goes to the Father? Well, if Jesus goes to the Father, what does that mean has happened? The Father has accepted Christ. And in fact, this becomes a a foundation of the believer's hope. Right? We, We can pray to the Lord. We can come boldly before his throne because Jesus is accepted at the Father's right hand and he ever lives to intercede for us. So the, the ascension of Christ and acceptance, 
before the Father establishes the validity of his righteousness. The fact that Jesus Christ raised from the dead and then raised from this earth into the Father's presence shows us that it's, he's true, that his righteousness is accepted before the Father. It is a tangible display of, God, of the Father's acceptance of Christ's righteousness. And, just to backpedal what we looked at a, a few weeks ago, if we are united to Christ by faith, then that righteousness that the Father accepts, He accepts all those that are in Christ by faith. So that we have this wonderful hope. In fact, this is one of the reasons why Paul says, if Christ is not risen from the dead, we are hopeless. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Now, notice, notice what he points to here. He doesn't point to the fact that if Christ is not risen from the dead, then that means that you will also die, or you have no hope of resurrection from the dead. That's true, but that's not the focus of what Paul is pointing to. He says if Christ is not risen from the dead, then you are still in sin because you've trusted in the wrong thing. That's what, that's what Paul is saying. If, if Jesus Christ is not risen from the dead, then our trust is empty because he wasn't accepted by the Father. And then those, who, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ... Notice the union that's there. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, then they have perished. And so, if Christ is not risen from the dead, and if He is the hope that we have in this life, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. So, so the, the resurrection is vital for our salvation, not simply because it shows our victory over death, but because it demonstrates and tangibly shows Christ's righteousness as being accepted before the Father. But then, here's the great hope. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then Paul goes on and speaks of how this is demonstrated, that, 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 that Christ is risen, those who have fallen asleep will rise first, then we who are left will raise with him and then comes the end when the father or when when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet does that sound familiar to what we heard in acts chapter 2 so the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a demonstration of his accepted righteousness before the Father and his, his position as victor of all God's kingdom. Now, how do we come to understand that reality? How do we come to be convicted of that righteousness? What is Jesus saying here in John 16? It comes through the Spirit. The Spirit convicts the world of righteousness. And then finally, the Spirit convicts the world of judgment now it's interesting what jesus says in john chapter 16 he says because the ruler of this world is judged what is he talking about well this is the final step of the spirit's conviction why does it matter that we reject christ and his righteousness so if you, if you see, there, there's, a, there's a very clear logical progression in what Jesus is saying about the Spirit's work. The Spirit convicts the world because they don't believe in me, and that's sin. Why is that sin? Well, because I'm the only one who has righteousness, and it's demonstrated before the whole world, for the whole world to see, because I've ascended to the Father. Well, what happens if I reject Christ and His righteousness? Well, my fate will be the same as the ruler of this world. The ruler of this world is judged. What does that judgment look like? It's seen in the fate of the ruler of this world. Jesus tells us in a parable, as those 
Well, actually, he tells us this not in a parable, but just in speaking about those who one day will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. He'll call them to be cast into, the he- into hell, which, is, which was created for the devil and his angels. The fate of the ruler of this world, Satan's fate, will be the fate of all who reject Christ. Our enemy is defeated. And those who persist in following the ruler of this world, they too are defeated. And they will meet the same fate that the ruler of this world will meet. We see that Christ brings this victory through the cross. In Colossians chapter 2, Jesus cancels the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And in nailing our sins to the cross, what does he do? He disarms the rulers and authorities. He puts them to open shame by triumphing over them. And as the writer of Hebrews tells us, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil, and he will deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So, sin, righteousness, judgment. Sin because they do not believe in Jesus Christ. Righteousness because they stood stood not in Christ's righteousness by faith, but they sought their own. And then the result of rejecting Christ and his righteousness is judgment. Now, what does Peter do at Pentecost as he is indwelt by the Holy Spirit? He does and points to these three things. Peter directly confronts the crowd's rejection of Jesus. If we look in verses 22 and 23 of Acts chapter 2, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by uh, by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you... You didn't just reject him. What did they do? They crucified and killed the Lord of glory. So um, they killed him by the hands of lawless men. The rejection of Christ is clearly seen there. We see it in verse 36, the second half of that. He said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you did not believe in, but rather you rejected, you crucified. And then Peter speaks of the righteousness of Christ, which is vindicated by Christ's resurrection and ascension. Acts chapter 2, verse 24. Notice what he says in verse 24. He says, This Jesus that they they delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, in verse 24, God raised him up. He loosed the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he quotes David, who speaks of Christ not being abandoned to Hades, but being brought up by the Father. We also see it in verses 30 through 32. He says, Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. In fact, Peter speaks specifically of how he has seen Jesus risen from the dead. And then Peter also speaks of the judgment that will come to those who reject Christ. It is judgment of a victorious king over his enemy. In fact, This entire passage, he begins by quoting the prophet Joel. And we're going to look next week at Joel chapter 2 and and see what's going on there. But 
that passage in the first part of it, it is, it's not a happy passage. It's a passage about judgment. It's a passage about judgment on God's people who have rejected Him. That there's a consequence for turning from God. And so Peter speaks of that. We see specifically in verses 34 and 35 of this passage. He says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And that is quoting Psalm 110. Look at what's said later on in Psalm 110. And the Jews there would have been familiar with this. What will Christ do? He will execute judgment among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Sin, they rejected Christ. Righteousness, He was raised from the dead and ascended before the Father. Judgment, He is going, the Father is going to make Christ's enemy His footstool. And this is what Christ is going to do to them in judgment. So, we jump down to verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. Now when they heard this, sin, righteousness, judgment, the Spirit convicted them. They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do. What shall we do? And the response is simple. Repent and believe. Look at what Peter says in verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. The Spirit is sent to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. How does he choose to do this work of conviction? By using the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Proclaiming him as the one that the world must believe in. Because he is the one who has the righteousness that only the Father will accept. And that rejecting him brings judgment. That's our message. It is the Spirit that uses us as the prophetic voice in this age to convict the world of these things. So we must go with fervor and confidence. Remember, God's Word, does it ever return empty? Does it ever not accomplish its purpose? So we are called to proclaim Christ. That is our prophetic ministry to the world. And we've been given the Spirit to do that work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the Spirit that you've given. Father, we first give thanks that as your people... You have, by your Spirit, convicted us of our sin of rejecting Christ. You have showed us that only His righteousness is acceptable and called us to reject our righteousness. And Father, by trusting in Christ and turning to His righteousness and not our own, we find that we are not under wrath, but we are under grace. That we are not subject to your judgment, but we have hope. So, Father, thank you for your Spirit's work in our hearts to believe this. 
And Lord, if there is anyone here, either in person, perhaps watching online, or even that may hear this message recorded at some point, Father, may your spirit, if they do not believe in Christ, convict them of Christ's trustworthiness, of his righteousness that only you accept, that they too may have a hope from judgment. And Father, may you ignite your people to take this message and to speak of Christ and him crucified. Not leaning on our abilities or strength in sharing the gospel, but that the gospel may come in the power of God, not the words of wisdom. Father, work in our midst through your spirit. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.